What an honor, what an honor it is to be here in Ireland with you. I am just pleased to be here and to be a part of this wonderful service. I'm, I'm just so surprised. I said, man, I, I know where I'm going to go to church in the future, when I, especially when I move to Ireland. Um, I, I just want to say, you know, I, I, hear, I, I thank you so much for these wonderful introductions, Gary and, and you all and uh, Steve. And I, you know, I heard him even say that thing about Gary. And Gary does blues, I do jazz. You know, there's this old article that's out, and the title, the title is, Blues is Jazz, and Jazz is Blues. And, uh, and I want you to think about it from that vantage point today when we think of what it means to be confronted by the presence of God. Because God has a way of relativizing our differences. We're located in God's peace and love and freedom and unity in a way that relativizes our differences. We're the ones that make a big deal over the differences. So I wanted to start off by saying today that I'm so blessed to be here and to have come to your land and to learn of you to what extent that I could in the few short days that I've been here. I must say that I've enjoyed the fruit of your openness and the fire of your passion and authenticity, which uh, prohibits you, as Gary would say, from standing in ceremony. I'm learning some Irish things while I'm here. And in my learning from you, my being here today, it began with a random meeting. That's a random meeting. We're at an author's book party. And that's why I ran into Gary. And and, uh, my running joke is, uh, after that party that night, I'd say I had never seen Gary in the daylight until I got to Ireland. And so he, in many ways, personified the kind of hospitality that I've enjoyed since I've been here. And so I wanted to uh, thank him for that and to thank you. And then, of course, I got to meet brilliant Christine, whose brilliance is only complemented by her passion for justice and mercy. And then she's an awesome cook. And that's just auxiliary, all right? And as you can tell, I like to eat. Uh, this, this weight did not come from a thyroid problem. Just, just get that straight. Just want to be honest about that. Uh, but I, I really enjoy it. I've enjoyed their hospitality. You know, theologians have a saying, and the saying is, and it's a Latin saying, so I'll, I'll say the Latin, but then I'll, I'll quickly uh, translate it, is hominem confusione et de providentia regatur, which is the confusion of man and the providence of God. Both of those things are true. Both of those things are necessary. We live in the tension of our own confusion. And at the same time, this wonderful providence of God that covers it all. Even when you step all over yourself, when you mess it up, you live within the providence of God. And there's these two things that allow us to live in the world in such a way that life sparkles with surprise. Once you get rid of one or the other, you sort of lose the surprise of it all. In fact, the thing that you could become limited by, I was talking to Gary and Christine and I were talking about this, the thing you could become limited by is by your own imagination. Because your imagination is not big enough. And you see this when you look at this passage that we're looking at today in Isaiah. 
God has to appear. And then what's going to do? I'm going to confound the wisdom of your wives, he says. Your imagination is not big enough. And I think about this when I think of my own background coming from America, where I'm from, this little town called West Petersburg, which is across the street from the first black asylum in America. And I come to a place like Heidelberg, and I travel to Wartburg and learn of of Luther and his life and his vision. And I don't plan it, but it just turns out that uh, the trip works out in such a way that I get to also come to Ireland and to learn of St. Patrick and his vision. And you see these differing visions in many ways that speak to a certain kind of truth. And this is the reason, part of the reason why I'm so glad that Isaiah is our text today. Because Isaiah is going to have a vision. And his vision is going to speak to him and his people in a transitional moment. Sort of like the one we're experiencing. We always, in fact, life is always a transitional moment. You're always transitioning from one thing to the other. You're always living in the midst of death even when you're in the midst of life. It's always there. Our problem is we tend to reduce death to the end of life rather than seeing how life itself can become instantiated with death. Institutions and ideologies can undermine your life if you're not careful. So when I visited the grave of St. Patrick on yesterday, I was reminded of his vision, which reminds me of all visions. In fact, one of the things I often say to my students is that all theology is broken. All theology. And, and when you understand that, then you know that your vision is, in some sense, it tends to be limited, partial, often filled with ambiguity. Your vision is often colored by your perception. I think this is part of the reason why it's so important for us to learn of each other and to learn from each other's differing visions. And sometimes what keeps us from hearing each other is our tendency to focus on our own doctrine and churches and the ways that we got it right. And so we don't hear each other's visions. And so we're not like the sticks that the child tried to break this morning. We're breakable. Why? Because our vision is limited. And I remember when I first prepared the sermon many years ago, and, and, I, and, and you know, with any preacher worth his salt, let me just say that, any preacher worth his salt, hopefully you can look back on some of your past sermons and wince a little bit. Right? You go, oh, I really messed that one up. And you, rec- you recognize how God is working beyond your ability to get the words right sometimes. And so I remember when I re- first um, um, wanted to preach this sermon, uh, I wanted to start out by emphasizing uh, what it means to be holy. And I realized I was seeing only half of the problem. And it was a, a, an Irishman, actually, named Jim McGuigan, who once said that, you know, a person who sees only half of a problem will be buried by the other half. And I think about that when I think about our vision. Now, what's going on in our text? When you look at Isaiah chapter 6, the nation is in a transitional moment. And I love the way it says, I'm going to read the text to you, and then we'll come back and and talk about that. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. The king is dying. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lofty. The hem of his robe filled the temple. And seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, which is a euphemism for genitals. And with two, they flew. And one said to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this idea of covering their eyes, covering their feet, it suggests 
lowliness, modesty, humility in the presence of God. Now, typically these seraphs would be on a king's throne to project the king's power. But for this king, they too are showing humility. God is beyond them. When you see this vision. And something else about the vision. You're going to see that the, the threshold of the temples are shaking at the voice, at their voices. Not God's voice. We know what happened when, when God cried out. Israel said, you, you, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let them speak to us because if he speaks to us, we'll die. So this vision that Isaiah has is, is powerful vision. When is it coming? In the year that King Isaiah died. So when you think of Isaiah, think of Amaziah, the king, and you'll find this out when you read 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, the king has been stricken with, lep- with leprosy. Okay? And he's confined to certain quarters even before the king dies. Right? And so there's a sense, we don't know if the king already died that year or if the king is about to die. We just know it's a transitional moment. And this person who has functioned at a time that's been very positive for Israel, this is the 8th century, a very successful nation at this moment. They've seen, they've won wars, they've built new fortifications, all kinds of positive things have happened. And it is this year that the king is dying that they're now confronted with this vision of God. So let me just give you your first point that I want you to get from this here. You must ground your vision. Ground your vision or ground yourself in God's sustaining vision. That's the first point that I want you to get from this. In fact, I want to, and and the way that the text is going to do this is that Isaiah is going to be reintroduced to God, I think, so that he can now reintroduce the people to God. And sometimes you have to do that. You got to be real. I remember uh, when I was in the military, when I was at school in Berkeley, I uh, I had a Vietnamese housemate. His name was Locke Nguyen, N-G-U-Y-E-N. And so one day I said to Locke, I walked him to him, I said, you know, Locke, I asked, how you doing, brother? We're eating together. I said, I said, what's your last name? He said, uh, my last name? He said, I said it. I said, what is it? He said, when? I said, I didn't ask when is your last name. What's your last name? He said, well, yeah. Uh, it's when. I said, when? He said, yeah. I said, no, no, I don't want to know when. I don't know, I want to know what it is. And then he got upset. He says, my name is when, N-T-U-Y-E-N. I needed to be reintroduced to him again. I just want you to know that. And when you look at Isaiah, there's a sense in which he has to be reintroduced to God. He gets this vision. And part of what the vision does is, and here's one of the things I want you to get from being reintroduced and seeing God sustaining a vision. Sometimes what it means is that our response to God in light of that vision has to be improvisational. You can't reduce God and your response to God to a particular way of responding to God. And what's, I think what happens when a nation's progress is altogether material, things begin to flatten out. The status quo begins to set the agenda in a way that undermines your ability to respond. And that's often true, that we live in spaces and times where the status quo becomes comfortable. And we don't want to change things. We don't, oh, oh that's, don't, 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 don't play that kind of music. I remember there was someone asked Martin Luther, the question was, uh, they, were, they were upset with Martin Luther because he had been taking these secular melodies and making gospel music out of it, making some kind of religious music out of it. And so I said, Luther, why do you keep doing it? He says, why should the devil have all of the good tunes? 
That was his response. And so I think there's a sense in which we have to sometimes break the tedium of ministry because if we don't, there's a danger of growing up in a church and where this, there's this idea that familiarity breeds contempt. It's like being around a, a, a famous person and you get used to being around them. This is what's that? Oh, everyone else is like, oh, wow. And you're like, oh, that's no one. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just some name we'd say that as if it's no one. Why? We become familiar to that person. And there's a sense, I think, in, and when you look at Isaiah's story and you look at it places like, and this is throughout the book, especially in what they call First Isaiah, which is in about the first 39 chapters or so. In First Isaiah, you keep getting this emphasis on the transcendence of God. And you'll see terms like the Holy One, the terror of God. And it uses language over and over again. And part of what it say, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, my people's worship to me consists of rituals learned by rote. They're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's almost like when you're driving home in your car and you pull in the yard and you forget all about that you've made certain turns. Right? It's like, oh, it's just, it's just second, it's like second nature. And this is sort of what their worship is becoming. And so Isaiah is going to, Introduce them again. It's again being in a church, listening to the same songs again, or maybe teaching the same class in the same way, right? And I was thinking about that the other day, Steve, when you mentioned you said that the, that the choir is learning some new songs. I was like, oh, good, right? And and one of the things I often say to my students is that when you think about God and the way that God often moves in the world, God is predictably unpredictable. Both of those things. And this is true in the African-American tradition. We have this saying, we say, well, you know, God might not be there when you want him to, but God is always on time, right? And so sometimes our, our lives have to be, in some ways, corresponded to a different kind of timing. Move according to a different kind of timing. And I think what God is doing in our, in our text that we're looking at this morning, he's shaking up Isaiah's timing. And how is he doing it? He's doing it because his faith, maybe the people's faith has become too casual. And so he's seeing the train filling the temple. He's seeing the angels around God. He's hearing the voices. The smoke, which is also could be translated as darkness, is filling the temple. And then what is Isaiah's response? Whoa! It's me. From a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. That vision, maybe he had forgotten it. Maybe the people have forgotten it. But he now sees again. And you know, the beauty and holiness, and I always think about this, especially when I'm preparing the sermon for Presbyterians. You know, Presbyterians are used to hearing about the majesty of God. But the thing about holiness, and I, when I translate it for students, it's a term that first of all applies to deity. That's the way it's understood. And actually, it's not just being set apart, but it carries the notion of being different, of a different order, a different way of being. So that when you think of holiness, don't think of God as just being other from you. It's the holiness of God that allows God to get next to you, to be close. And so when you look at the idea of holiness, it actually cuts two different ways. And Presbyterians need to hear that. It's not just the otherness. Holiness cuts two different ways. Holiness not only demonstrates the distance between us and God, ironically designed to keep us from treating God as mundane or ordinary, but paradoxically, holiness also provokes us to see the beauty of God in the ordinary. I was thinking about this with talking to Gary the other day. We were, we were having this conversation, and Gary was talking about the time when he got sick. 
and how he began to feel that the little things mattered so much more. When you've been sick for a while, and then you get the chance now to breathe the air in a different way, or to walk your dog when you couldn't walk your dog, or to maybe change the pamper, right? And those things almost, they become like sacraments when you've experienced sickness. Why? Because God brings you back in a way. So now, why? You begin to see even those little things as holy. Holiness in the mundane. And I think we have to re-grasp that. And so this brings me to my second point that I'll give to you. I'm at 16 minutes, so I'm doing all right. right? Say, oh, he's a black preacher. We're going to be here all day today. No, no, no. I won't won't hold you too long, all right? Uh, but what, the second point that I want to make is that we have to cultivate that vision of God by looking for God in places. You know, God often appears in silence. It's not a question of whether God is there. God is present in silence. And so we have to try to tease out and discern where God is at work. I was thinking of the other day, we were walking up these stairs. We had just come from Saul, from that, in that location. And we are looking at the church and, and learning about St. Patrick. And we are walking on these stairs. And on the stairs, each step, one step said, Christ in me. Another said, Christ beneath me. And Christ above me. And I thought that if I was going down the stairs, I'd have to read it the other way. But you know, God is that way. All around us and through. And so when you look at the text that we're talking about today it says holy 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 is the lord of hosts then it goes this way the whole earth is full of his glory so he's not just other the whole earth he's permeating it all so that's why scholars you put the idea of holiness and transcendence together i'm sorry i'm sorry transcendence and imminence together otherness and presence and that's their way of trying to get at who this god is and they're trying to see this god from different perspectives because we're all looking with this partial vision. It's almost like a diamond. And as you turn, you see the different facets, but each facet make up the beauty of the diamond. And so we miss certain facets. Why? Because we're, maybe we're just standing a little to the side without being outside. And that's why we need to come together like the sticks and be confronted by the presence of God, even in the eyes of the other. It reminds me of this story uh, I read, in the, it's called a, a book called The Female Face of God in Auschwitz. And they're in Auschwitz. And in Auschwitz, faith doesn't make sense. Faith looks foolish. And how did they express their faith? The female face of God. You know what they did? One of the things they did to express their faith was to wash their faces with urine. That made sense. That was a, a statement of faith. What else did they do? They cleaned up the, the, the floors because they would sweep. Why? Because some people had dysentery when you're not eating properly and things like that. And so what did they want? Their faith was seen in these little acts. And those little acts were powerful. And what were they doing? Cultivating in some sense. We were talking about this the other day. The idea that we need to, to cultivate the marvelous. There's a jazz writer who says that a, a jazz, he said we should cultivate the marvelous. And when I said that, said, Steve said, now has you, have you claimed that as a title yet, Ray? Because I want to use that for a title for a book. I said, oh, you can have it. You can have it. <laughs> but if, you, if we cultivate the, model, uh, the, the, the marvelous, it means that we live life in a way where we begin to tease out a sense of awe. And I hear that when I, when I think of your wonderful tradition in your land and how there's certain language that we're talking about, there's certain language that you use that already comes from this kind of spiritual kind of background. 
that where, where when we think about St. Patrick, he's in some way, he's tied to the ordinary. Don't lose your relationship to the ordinary. Cultivate that. Honor that. Celebrate that. Revel in that. And you, in some ways, will begin to cultivate um, the, the, the marvelous. I, I, I think about this because uh, one of the things we should remember that God is not even a prisoner of his own majesty. The whole earth, again, is full of his glory. And I, I, I remember when I went into the Air Force. I have to tell you, sir, I came out of school. I graduated and I went into the Air Force. I, I first served in the military. And one of the things I wanted to do, I did not want to be a Marine. Marines, in fact, they're often called grunts. I didn't even like the name grunt. I want to be a Marine. Want to, let me go in the Air Force. That's where the smart people go. And so when I went into the Air Force, I did very well on my ASVAB test, this test you take to get in the military. I did very well on that. And so I chose the job. I wanted to be an air traffic controller. They made a mistake on the contract, though. They put me both in electronics and something else. And so I had a contract dispute. And so they gave, they gave me a choice. They said, you got two choices. You, know? you can start this whole process over or you can go in with what's called open general. And then you can choose to be an air traffic controller when you get there. I said, oh, that's good. You know what? I'll just wait. Now, I didn't know that the small print on the contract said, Air Force needs come first. So I go into Air Force. Well, Air Force needed police officers. All right? And police officers in the Air Force are the grunts. I said, ah, okay, this, this could be a problem. So uh, I'll never forget it. Then they was about to go to training. And then it says, you know, uh, now the police in the Air Force, you guys actually train with the Marines. And I'll never forget it. The first day, the first day of, of, uh, of our meeting with the gunny sergeant, he, he walks out. He's, we're sitting like you're sitting because Air Force people are very stately. You know, and we're sitting on, but we're sitting on the floor. Sitting, and uh, there's some boxes here, one box actually. And so the Marine walks out, comes out. And says, Give me an Air Force personnel up here to pick up this box. And so the Air Force people, you going? A couple of us got up on. He said, sit down. Give me a Marine up here to pick up. And all at once, the Marines were jumping over. It's like they arrived at the stage all at once. And I was, what's going on here? You know, they had a deep respect for the gunny. I had no idea about that. And so by spending time with them, I learned what it means to live in reverence of someone or something. But I would have missed that if I just continued uh, with my looking down on the grunts. Right, looking down on those who might be at the bottom of life in some way, and and, and it also reminds me when you think of these ways that we create cul-de-sac, we create differences. It reminds me of the fact that God does it a different way, and it's it when you think of it in terms of what God does, it's counterintuitive. He makes each one of us the center of His life. God makes each person the center of God's life. He knows the hairs on each one of our heads. He's involved in your life and my life in America at the same time. One nation and another nation at the same. Even those that we would say, oh, those are the enemies. They're the ones that are in a different category. God makes us all the center. Now, if I tried to make you the center of my life, then me and my wife are going to have some real problems. You see? So we, we don't do And so how is he able to do that? He transcends the limitations that we have. So cultivating uh, this vision is very important. Now let me say one last thing about this. To do that, 
to cultivate that. You have to learn, and I want to say this in the context of the tragic. We have to learn to interrogate our disillusionment. Learn to interrogate our disillusionment. In fact, we often get disillusioned about life because we've identified God with our failure or success. I'll say this in another way. Don't become enamored with your failure or success or society's conventions. Even the conventions here in this great land. Don't become enamored. Paul's vision that we read in 2 Corinthians, when he looks at the world and he says, all things are new. I'm saying, Paul, what are you seeing? Is this the same Paul that's in prison? Something about the vision of God that now caused him to look at the old world in a new way. So we have to, in some way, make sure that we learn to, co- uh, to, uh, to interrogate this tendency. And what we tend to do is we tend to, again, read it flatly. And I would say it this way. Sometimes you see God's judgment in your failure. In the, I'm sorry. Sometimes you see God's judgment in the failure of your success. And sometimes you may see God's grace in the success of your failure. And that's different. I said, I thought I failed. No, you won. And imagine grounding ministry simply on the numbers. How many people show up? And I know people do this with the book of Acts, chapter 2. Oh, 3,000. Look at what they were doing. And they're counting the numbers. What if it was 300? And so we have to learn to interrogate our disillusionment. And I think that's very important. And how is that tied to Isaiah? I'm telling you how I think it's tied to Isaiah. It's tied to Isaiah and the connection that I mentioned earlier between Isaiah's dying and Isaiah's feeling of woe. In fact, here's what happened, I think. I think in the year the king died, I think he was looking at one king when he should have been looking at another king. The question is this, what do you do when your hero dies? What do you do when that person or that entity or that institution or whatever it is, that thing that you think is going to answer the problems, that program love churches love programs that program that you are planning when it doesn't work is your vision ultimately in its success? Or is it grounded in something that allows you to live in the midst of the tragic? In the midst where the light always shines where, Steve? The light shines in darkness but our problem is We love to turn the darkness into light rather than simply being the light. We have this real problem with this in America because we have a tendency to slip into what's called civil religion. And so you want to Christianize the nation rather than being a Christian within the nation. And so then you identify America's freedom with God's freedom. And now the freedom of God is no longer in tension with the world's freedom and calling it to a deeper way of being in the world. You see, the gospel is calling us to a deeper way of being in the world that now sometimes turn things on. That's why you use that term, subversive. Right? And so subversiveness from the gospel, may, because it's intention. So well, I'm, I'm being just. Well, maybe your, justice, your justness is a little self-centered. And so God has a way of, when you think of the gospel, it kind of moves us and makes us move in a different way. So the vision of God changes, I think, how Isaiah understood the king and how he understood himself and how he understood the people around him. So I'm at 27 minutes and I'm going to close with this. Let me just say this. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm going to say that that finally seek 
in light of the other things I said, seek to continuously respond to God and your experiences in gratitude. In gratitude. Here's what I mean by that. We have to be learned, uh, and I get this from the Hebrew Bible, because when you look at Israel, Israel had to learn to appreciate both the exodus and the exile. Both of those things, for them, were the word of God. And so when we look at our text, for instance, I'll just, uh, just go back to this text and let you hear this. And when you read down through there, and I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and stop their eyes so that they may know with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Typically, we think it's by opening our eyes that we turn and we're healed. He said, no, I want you to close their eyes so that they will turn and be healed. It's almost like he's saying that I want them to get to a place where they recognize that everything that they try to do to solve things, although you do them, you actually ground the success in that somewhere else and not in whether you got it all right or not. And you know what that really does for us? It allows you to freely be an advocate. Now, it doesn't say don't be an advocate. It's not escapism, but it allows you to freely be an advocate. I think part of our problem sometimes is we like to carry heavy burdens. Jesus said, my burden is light. No, no, let's make it heavy. I feel better if it's heavy. <laughs> oh, and then you say, oh, there's heavy burdens. And then church becomes, where are you going? I'm going to church. I'm just putting in my time, carrying heavy burdens. Learn to enjoy, find ways. And look, and, and by the way, let me, I want to be clear about this. That means sometimes coming to a second naivete about your failure and success. And that might mean looking at the success as a failure. It might mean looking at the failure as a success. God bless you. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak to you today. <laughs>